Good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, we are we are wow, that's tall. We're about one week out from uh, from this whole thing getting getting finished. Uh, we're excited about that. So, um, thank you to all those who came out on well stuck stuck around last Sunday to uh, help move chairs out. Those of you who came yesterday to help us move chairs back in uh, couldn't do that. By ourselves, there was there was much over engineering going into the measuring of each row and where they go, and um, I'm glad someone do that. Uh, be, before I get started, I just want to give a shout out. They don't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give a shout out to the guys in my uh, life group because all the ladies were out on a retreat this weekend, and they all showed up with their kids by themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Okay. I'm glad they did it. I was, I, I, was, I was nervous. I was nervous. I'm not going to lie, but I'm glad. Hey, uh, we've been spending the last uh, several weeks reimagining a little bit, reimagining what church is uh, supposed to be about. The reason is because when we start doing something, we can do it over and over and over and again and just kind of be going through the motions and not really have a sense in our heads of like, why, why, what is this supposed to be about? We just keep doing the thing. When we do the thing, there's multiple uh, responses that start happening. Some of it is just, well, this becomes normal and it becomes comfortable and sometimes it becomes boring. And we, we lose a sense of like, what, what is this that we're doing? And so that's what we're doing over the, over the course of this fall. We're taking a look at what, what, are the, what, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we about here? You know, we, we looked at the mission of the church. We spent three weeks on that. Now we're spending the next, well, we did last week and then, and then three more, or two more after this week looking at what is this group supposed to be about. Then we're going to look at leadership. We're going to look at community. We're going to look at a lot of different things. This week, though, specifically what I want to look at is what are our expectations? What do you expect? being the church. What, what, what do you expect of the church? What do you expect? And I don't just mean like for you personally. I just mean like what, what is this thing and what do we expect it to be kind of accomplishing? And so for that, we're going to turn to the words of Jesus in this really, really pivotal passage um, that unfortunately has been used to cause more division than anything else. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn in it to Matthew 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some, I know there are, like every other chair, and I know there are because uh, the, the, the Miller kids went through and put them, made sure they were uh, between every couple of chairs underneath that, in that little basket yesterday. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. And when, my, when I say own a Bible, I mean own a Bible you can understand, um, like one that you can read and, and get. Like, go ahead and take that one, okay? But uh, however you can have it in front of you, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Let's see if you all remember what we practiced last week. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Good job. So proud of you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you that you are the one who leads our worship. You are the one who, who preaches to our hearts that by your spirit you are active. You are the son of the living God, active in the world, active in our lives. Would you confess, many of us, if not all of us, have forgotten that. So open our eyes to that again today, that you would receive the praise for it. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. There's this, um, there's this common trope, uh, which is another word of, a way of saying theme. There's this kind of common trope in literature, film, storytelling, really, that I'm sure you're familiar with. And it, and it lines up with the old adage that it's always darkest before the dawn. You know, this is that, that trope that the, the good guys are under overwhelming odds and everything is just, they're just kind of stuck there and everything's against them, surrounded, overwhelmed. There's no way that anything is going to go well until it finally does, right? It's everywhere. And Stephen mentioned Star Wars this morning. This is, it's in, uh, you know, Return of the Jedi, this battle of the second, uh, the second Death Star over Endor. The Empire, Imperial fleet is huge. There's no way we're going to win. It's in the, um, the film version, not the literature version, but the film version of Lord of the Rings in, in The Return of the King. Uh, at the end, when the armies of Mordor are swarming around this little tiny group of people on this hill, like all, everywhere. It's, it's everywhere in our, in our storytelling. We seem to love it. And it's the way I think many of us like to view ourselves. I think it's the way we've been taught to view the church. A whole series of books have been written Positing that as the identity of the church right before Jesus comes back, which I'm not going to talk about this morning, but just in case some of you are like, ooh, it's going to be, no, we're not doing that. But what I do want to do is just throw out there that if that's your expectation, then that will impact how you live today. If that's your expectation of what the church is supposed to be, of what, of, what, if, of what we are supposed to be expecting out of the work of God in the world, then it will impact how you pray, how you live, how you act. It impacts everything. But is that reality? That's the question we're taking to the passage this morning. As always, there's an outline if you'd like to take notes. If not, just leave it. What I want to do first is I want to look at this passage in a couple of ways. I want to look at it in terms of the question of identity and then the question of direction. And then, and then finally, we're going, to, we're going to look at how we can reimagine our expectations, okay? So first, let's look at this prophetic identity. Look down at verses 13 and 14. Jesus coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is um, kind of a, a town, a city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. If, if you're familiar at all or you flip to the back of your Bible, there's probably a map in there. You can see it's about 25 miles north. It's a northern region. And, and so he, we're, we're not entirely certain exactly what the, where specifically they are, but they're somewhere in that vicinity. And Jesus decides to ask his closest friends what people think of him. Love that question. I love that question because uh, in, in, at least in, in our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke especially, 
Somebody's going to fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure this event does not happen in, in John's gospel. But this is kind of like the hinge point. This is the center point, especially in Matthew and Mark, of their, of, of the, their story that they're writing. This is the center point in which everything from this point on begins this track towards Jerusalem and what is coming for Jesus. And so Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, um, that phrase, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite way of identifying himself. Sounds very strange to most of us. I don't think any of us would consider calling ourselves anything similar to that. It's almost as if he's speaking of himself in the third person, right? Uh, and, well, I won't go into the Seinfeld reference, but it is kind of funny. Anyway, um, but Jesus uh, talks about himself in this phrase, the Son of Man, and that comes from Daniel 7. I know many of us grew up in church uh, where we, we came to think that Son of Man, Son of God has to do with Jesus being fully man and fully God. It does not. It has nothing to do with it. Just erase that from your brains, okay? Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, um, Daniel's having this vision of, of this throne room. And in the throne room, he has, uh, the, he has God, who he calls the Ancient of Days, and God is sitting on his throne. And into the throne room, it says, on the clouds, coming on the clouds... Very, of course, we don't have time to go into that either. Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. But coming on the clouds comes the Son of Man into the throne room, not away from it, but into the throne room. And he's given authority and a kingdom and a people, all of these different things. And, and so um, it, it, that is where Jesus is pulling this phrase. And so he identifies himself with this figure that was called the Son of Man. And he says, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I love their answer. They say, um, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I should say this from the out, out, outskirt, out, outset, thank you, uh, from the outset, that saying that does not mean that people in Israel believed that Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, all these people had been raised from the dead or that had been reincarnated. That's not what that means. Um, oftentimes, um, you'd see Jewish folks who would identify a later figure by an earlier figure in the spirit of. Right? As if they are, they are very much like them. And so when they're, when they're saying this, it doesn't mean that they thought they believe in reincarnation. They did not. Okay? They, they didn't think that. They're speaking to the character of what Jesus was doing. So let's, let's break it down. What does that mean? John the Baptist. Many of you know that John the Baptist was uh, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist had the ministry preceding Jesus. What was his ministry like? Well, he said a lot of hard things to a lot of people. He went out into the middle of the wilderness. He was... He was um, he was leading a renewal movement of, uh, of Judaism and, and was trying to prepare people for the coming Messiah. And he said really hard things to Jewish leaders. Like when um, the teacher showed up and he called them a brood of vipers. It's not a nice thing. You know, most of us would not do that. It's not a friendly way to address people. But like who, who, who warned you to escape the wrath to come, you know. Um, it, he, he said those kinds. So some say Jesus, you're a lot like John, who had just recently been killed. Elijah. Okay, Elijah. Well, there's, there's Old Testament uh, prophecy that talks about Elijah coming again before the, the great and, and terrible day of the Lord. That, there's, that, that you, Jesus, are a lot like Elijah. Why? Well, Elijah raised people from the dead. Jesus is known to do that. Elijah... Um, was known to um, help, a, help a widow have food by multiplying the kind of food that she had and, to, and it would never run out. Well, Jesus was known for that too, right? 
So maybe he's, maybe he's like Elijah. Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah known for? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet who, who was talking to God's people right before they experienced the, the worst possible judgment of God in the Old Testament, the, the exile, the destruction of their imperial city. And, and he would proclaim things like, hey guys, don't trust in this temple. This temple's not going to save you just because you happen to be here. Like, you're unfaithful to, to God, and if you're unfaithful to God, like, his discipline's coming. And, you know, G Jesus said similar things. In fact, what was one of the primary things that he was accused of at his trial? Destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. So, yeah, he did a lot of things like them. One of the prophets. Well, okay, sure. I mean, there's lots of them. So you just pick, he, which is to say that Jesus' ministry seemed to be speaking with authority from, from God. He, he did that. And so here's the interesting thing. All of these are prophetic, right? All of, the expect all of what the people as a whole saw Jesus as was a religious teacher, now, yeah, he had some miraculous things he did. Sure, there were some amazing things that happened. He, there was raising the dead. There was, there was all this crazy stuff. He's walking on water. He's multiplying food. He's, he's, he's healing sick people. He's casting out demons. Obviously, they would say he's, he's clearly from God. And he's teaching good things. I mean, people at large saw Jesus as a teacher who came from God. And some of us in this room are right there, right? You're in great company. Lots of people, that's how they saw Jesus. I mean, listen, I, I've never met someone who thought that Jesus was a bad dude. They were like, Jesus, man, that dude was just terrible. Like, almost everyone wants to claim him, right? Whether you believe in him or not, everybody wants to claim him. Like, we all want to say, like, Jesus is my guy, I just don't like the, what Christians have done with him. Like, we, we say that kind of thing. So, you know, some of us... You know, we're right there. Jesus taught good things. He was loving people, all that jazz. He might even be from God. That's where the masses are. That's where the masses are. This guy's communicating religious things, and he's clearly from God because he's done these crazy, miraculous things. But interestingly enough, Jesus is not happy with that answer. Right? Let's keep going. You know, I wish at times there was more detail in the scriptures because I'd love like stage direction or like the way that we do narrative where we, where we talk about how, how people are moving. Because I, I kind of imagine Jesus, you know, they're walking along, who the people say the Son of Man is? And they're answering, and all of a sudden he just kind of stops. And he waits, and they all notice he's not coming with us, and he's, they all stop and turn. Because, but you, who do you say that I am? It's this moment of incredible intimacy and, and, and in many ways a lot of vulnerability, right? Jesus is asking, like, you guys have been closer to me than anybody. What about you? How do you understand this? And that's an important question. One of the reasons I think this question, this moment, made it into scripture, not just in this place, but in multiple places, is because I think this is the question. Isn't it? What do you do with Jesus? Like, look, you can argue all you want about the Bible's view of X, right? Like, we can get hung up on the fact that, like, on what the Bible says about sexuality. We can get hung up on, the, on what it says about gender. We can get hung up on, on things like marriage. We can get hung up on just morality in general. We can get hung up on all of that. We can get hung up on whether or not it, it disagrees with scientific consensus. But at the end of the day, 
The question is, what do you do with Jesus? Because if Jesus, if, if, you, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, who cares what the Bible says about any of that stuff? The question isn't, well, do I get to Jesus through these things? It's, okay, let's start with the main thing. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answers. He always does. <laughs> that guy's always the first one to talk. And those of us who were the, always the first ones to talk, we know that that generally gets you into trouble. This time it didn't, uh, okay? So what does he say? Look down. He says, you're the Christ. Okay, now, for, mo- for many of us, whether, whether you grew up in church or not, the, like, the word Christ is just either said as an expletive or it's kind of just attached to the, the end of Jesus' name such that we're not really sure what that is. That is a title, okay? It's a, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word was Mashiach, which meant anointed one. We get our word Messiah from it, but it's, it's this sense of being anointed. And the, to say this was bringing forward an entire story of the Jewish people. In fact, the entire story of the Bible Because you see, God created all things, and he created them all good, and he put us, he put humanity in the middle of all of it to kind of be in a dependent relationship with him, to exercise his loving and just rule over all things. And and he, he did that in a way so that we would be with him. But in time, we believed a lie, that lie being that he he wasn't for us, that we couldn't depend on him. In fact, we shouldn't depend on him because he wasn't out for our good. He was out there to hold us back. He was doing all these things, and so we betrayed him. We turned away from him. That's what, that's what the Bible calls sin. It's a relational betrayal. It's a breaking of relationship. We said, no, no more of this. I, I can and must do my own thing because you are not trustworthy. And when we did that, everything broke. We broke, right? We broke our relationship with God, the one that we were made for, which means that all of a sudden, like, we're all messed up. We entered into this thing, this state in which we're now bent away from God. It's a state that the Bible calls sin. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. But God made a promise right then and there to make things right. He said, this is not the way this is going to end. I'm going to make this right. And so the entire rest of the Old Testament is, is literally God working out the answer to that promise of him making things right. And as the Old Testament progressed, it saw that God was going to do it, and then God's going to do it through his people Israel, and then God's going to do it through, through a part of Israel, this tribe called Judah, and then, and then he's going to do it through this king uh, of the line of David. And, and, and the expectation began to be that God is going to answer our biggest problems through this, this figure called his Christ. Now, were they all perfectly clear on how that was going to happen? No. In fact, at the time in which the, the, Jesus is walking on the earth at this point, how everyone thought that was going to happen was that the king would come, he would be a better Caesar than Caesar, conquer the world with his military, and, and somehow then sin would just kind of go poof. Because you know that works, right? Put people of God in power and all of our sin just goes poof. Yeah, yeah, no, quite the opposite, right? And so for Peter to call Jesus the Christ means he's bringing forward an entire story. You are the one through whom, in ways that we're, we think we know what it is, but we're still not entirely clear, the one through whom God is going to answer his famous promise, his covenant promise back in Genesis to make the world right again. 
You're him. You're the Christ. He says, the son of the living God. Now, I said a few minutes ago that we used to think, we tend to grow up thinking son of man, son of God means he's fully man and fully God. That's actually not what that means. Son of God, more often than not, in the New Testament is a, is a hearkening back to something that was written in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's son was again a king. 2 Samuel 7 talks about that. For those of you who want to look that up a little bit later, 2 Samuel 7 is the time in which God is making a promise to David. And he says to David, like, listen, you want to build a house for me, David? You want to build a temple for me? No, no, no. I'm going to build a house for you. Here's the way it's going to work. A son from your body will sit on your throne forever and ever and ever, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Psalm 2 is another one, right? I'm sure everyone's familiar with that. I can move on. No, Psalm 2, he says, he says you know, you, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's, it's again, it's about kingship. It's about this role, this kingly role. So, so Peter is saying, you are, you're, it's not that you're a prophet. It's that you are, you are the promised king of the living God. Right? And that's the way the Jewish people would differentiate their God from the false gods of the world. Their God lives, everyone else that don't, like they're not alive. They're, they're idols that, that can't see. So let's compare, shall we? The crowd see Jesus as a religious teacher, a prophet, a miraculous one. Sure, he did miraculous things, but that's about it. Peter, and by proxy, we'll just give the rest of the disciples the benefit of the doubt, right? By proxy, the rest of the disciples see Jesus as something, something else, right? The crowd see Jesus as just another in a long line of prophets, but Peter sees something different about Jesus. He isn't someone like Elijah. He isn't someone like Jeremiah. He isn't someone like John the Baptist. He isn't like one of the prophets. He's unique. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the culmination of of all of the story of the Bible, all of our hopes, he is the epitome, the pinnacle of all of it. You're not like anyone, Peter says. You're not like them. You are something completely different. There is no one like Jesus. Do you see that? Listen, I'm not saying, do you agree with that? That's a whole other question. But that's what the argument is. So we can say, like, well, Jesus is just a good religious teacher, but understand that you are making a judgment there that the, the Bible does not allow. And if, if you're okay with that, that's fine. But the Bible sees there's something utterly unique about this guy. This is the claim that's being made here. This is the conclusion that Peter and, assumedly, the rest of the disciples have come to. You, you are what this whole thing has been out. You're the Christ. And Jesus seems pretty pleased with that answer, right? So let's, let's look down at that question in direction. Look down at verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now stop there. So that word blessed, and that is traditionally really hard for us to get. We vacillate everywhere from between like bless your heart, which is um, a southern way of saying, oh, I pity you. There's something wrong with you. You know, bless your heart. Uh, and and, um, and the, the, the ridiculous phrase, I'm too blessed to be stressed. 
can't stand that either. Sorry if that's you. I, I can't stand that phrase. The word blessed can be translated in a number of different ways. Like we generally translate it in blessed or in the, in the older versions of the Bible, a lot of times it'll say happy, which is, makes it even harder for us to get. Generally, it speaks to a state of flourishing, okay? Like flourishing, well, what does that mean? It means that this is kind of the state in which we're supposed to be in. So like Jesus' uh, famous sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. When he said, blessed are the poor, it wasn't, you're not in a state of flourishing because you're poor. It's the results of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So it's not being poor in spirit that flourishes you. It's the result of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will see God. Blessed are those who mourn. We're like, so if I'm grieving, I'm flourishing? No. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. It's the being comforted part, right? It's that second part of that Sermon on the Mount that actually shows what it is that the blessing is, what it is that being blessed is. The first part is just kind of the pathway to get there, okay? So being blessed is a, is a sense of, 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 of flourishing, and, and Jesus says, you, Simon, Peter, okay, that's Peter's name, Simon, you, Simon, are in that state. He calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah is... Um, is the Jewish way of saying son of Jonah. We, we would say um, Jonas, Johnson, Johnson, right? That's, that's literally what this is. Um, it's our just English way of saying it. So Simon Johnson, uh, blessed are you. You're blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Now here's where it gets important. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. See, the Bible talks about our natural state, and I talked about that a few seconds ago when I mentioned the fact that after we betrayed God and turned away from him, we entered into this state. It, we, the Bible talks about this state in which we are bent away from him, right? It calls it, 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 calls it sin. In other words, our, our natural state, our nature is not neutral. I know we want to be neutral, right? We tend to think that we're objective people. We sit and we take in all sides and we make decisions, but the Bible says that, that actually... That's not true of us. And in our natural state, when it comes to God, that's not true of us at all. In fact, um, uh, an early Christian leader by the name of Paul wrote this big, long letter called Romans. In his first chapter, he says that what we do by our very nature is we take the truth of God that we see and we suppress it. That in fact, that we don't want to know it. That though it's clear, at least that's what the Bible says, it's all clear to us. We go, no, I don't want that. I want to take that and push that down. And so Peter's confession, Jesus is saying, it didn't come from you. You didn't kind of come up with this by weighing all the evidence. You weighed all the evidence. And, you know, you made a, a, a decision based on the evidence that, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. He said, no, that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because flesh and blood, like some other dude talked to you about it, and you suddenly got it. It happened because God revealed it. That God countered whatever your natural bent was to push it down and said, nope, not today, Simon. Today, you're going to get it. And, it. and suddenly, he gets it. He gets it. God revealed it to Peter. It's been revealed by my Father in heaven, Jesus says. Now, this is crazy because in our culture, we love to view God as wanting to be sought, don't we? We love the idea of God kind of just sitting out there He's off in the ether somewhere. He's just waiting for us to seek him. He's like, maybe you'll find me one day. Like a long lost love. We're searching and God is out there waiting to be found. Well, that is not what Jesus says, is it? 
Peter knows what he knows because God revealed it. God countered whatever was going on in Peter, and clearly whatever was also going on in the crowds, by the way. God countered it in Peter. Again, we'll give a benefit of the doubt to the rest of the disciples. Countered it in the disciples so that they would be blessed. Okay? Now, verse 18. Here's the controversial part. Okay? Let's read that. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let's just stop there. Okay, so we come to this controversial verse. And some of us know it's controversial. Others of us don't, don't know it. So let me, let me bring it in. The reason why this particular verse tends to be controversial is because it has become the basis for, um, for the claims of a, one particular Christian tradition, that being Roman Catholicism, on why they, why they have an office called the Pope. Okay, so in the, in the Reformation, the 16th century Reformation, this was like, this was like the verse, right? It was like this one and Jesus saying, this is my body, right? Those two, those were the two verses that everyone fought about. So why is that? Because Jesus is saying, you're Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, right? And so let me, let me just roll down how this, how this plays out. So if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, or maybe you are a Roman Catholic and you're just visiting here today, what you've probably been taught or heard or, or maybe alluded to is the fact that when Jesus says this to Peter, he's talking about Peter specifically. Peter, you, you are Peter, and on you and, and, and your, um, uh, pre, not predecessors, the, those who will come after you in your same role, you are the rock upon whom the church Lands And we didn't read these verses, but then he says, I'm going to give you the keys to, to the kingdom, and, and what you lose, you're in charge of everything. You're going to be in charge of everything. And so he gets the keys, and others after him get the keys and all that stuff. That's the Roman Catholic version of how this is supposed to play out, right? Now, I won't get into the, some of the problems in that yet, okay? So um, there, then the Protestants, of course, came around, and, and, and we didn't like that, so we had to argue against it. And so what we did, in many cases, they argued, no, no, no. When, see, Jesus uses two different words there, and this is true, okay? This is all true, that in the original, he uses, he uses uh, rock when he talks about Peter. He says, Simon, you're this, and I say that you are Peter, and that word, many of us know, you, you either grown up in church or you've done your Bible study, you know that, that the word Peter means rock. And so he's, but then when he says, and upon this rock, it's a different word. See, it's a different word. So he must not mean Peter. He means it's a, it's a smaller word. It's like a pebble. Okay, and so, so he's like, it's on this rock. No, no, it's actually on this, on this pebble. And so what he's talking about is one of two different things, right? This is the way we, we do it. Either he's talking about Peter's uh, confession, that Jesus is the Christ. See, I'm going to build my church on this on this confession of the, the truth of the gospel, that you are, in fact, the, the answer to the story, Jesus. Now, of course, that doesn't really work. I mean, it, it's very hard to get that, honestly, on a natural reading of this, of this passage. But, but you, can, you can go there. Or we base it on um, the idea of, 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 again, imagining the way this discussion went. And so Jesus is standing here, and Peter's there, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And we think that the rock is actually Jesus and not Peter. And somehow he did some finger-pointing thing and came back to himself, and we're supposed to get that from the passage, okay? Again, very godly, smart people have, have written about this. 
Again, I would say this isn't a natural reading of the passage. So what does this mean then? Well, I can tell you this. There's no evidence in this passage that what Jesus is saying to Peter extends beyond Peter. So, I mean, you can say that it's an office that continues, but there's no, there's no evidence in the passage for that. It's like, he didn't say, Peter, you are, you are, I say, you're Peter, and on your office, I will build my church. No, he says it's on you, right? He says it's on you. Peter is special, right? Even as Protestants, we can agree with this. Who was it that preached on the day of Pentecost? Peter did. And what happened when he preached on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people became Christians. It's a pretty big deal. I've preached some good sermons. <laughs> that has never happened. Right? Okay. Peter preaches, and frankly, the sermon, I, of course, it's, you know, we, we, we know that this is probably representative of what he said, not, not uh, comprehensive of what he said, but the sermon lasted all of, if you just read the passage, all of like 35 seconds. And 3,000 people came to Jesus. Like, okay, so not only was that off of what Peter was doing, he was preaching, but later, the first person to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Who was that? It wasn't Paul. I know we're reformed. We love Paul. Nope. Peter. Peter goes to Cornelius. God's got to convince him to do it, because Peter's a little stuck in his, in his Jewishness there for a little bit about what I'm supposed to eat and what I'm not. Never has anything unclean touched my lips, Lord. Liar. Anyway, so and he, he goes, he goes to, to Cornelius, and the gospel comes to the Gentile world. Peter's special. God used him in a special way. He's special the same way that Moses was special. Same way that Abraham was special. Was it because of something in them? No. Moses and Abraham are train wrecks. Peter wasn't much better. They're special because God chose to use them in a special way, at a special moment, at a special point in time. And for those of you who are like really, really into, deeply into theology and are arguing with me right now, Sinclair Ferguson believes the same thing. So nanny boo-boo, okay? All right, <laughs> moving on. And those of you who don't know what that means, it's fine. It's probably better. All right, moving on. Here's the, here's the thing. This whole debate misses the point. When Jesus uses two words to say the same word, when he uses petros and petra, when he says, he says rock and this, and it does mean littler rock, right? The entire point is that there is nothing impressive about Peter. You're not this big, awesome boulder, that's not who you are. There's nothing impressive about him, nothing special, nothing powerful. And so Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this little thing, I'm going to build my church. Not Peter, you're going to get it done. Not disciples, you're going to figure this out. Not later Protestants, you're going to go out and do your evangelism program. Jesus says, I'm going to build it on your lack of impressiveness, on your littleness, on your sense of like, you're just, there's nothing special. But I'm going to build my church. Do you see this? This, is not, this entire verse is not about Peter. It's about God. It's about Jesus. Jesus says, yes, you are Peter. You are. And you're going to do great things. 
But on you, you. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it. Peter will be the impetus for the beginning of the church. Not because his strategy is awesome. Not because he gets it and the crowds don't. Not because of anything other than the fact that Jesus has determined to take this little, rather unimpressive fisherman, small business owner, but still a fisherman, and show how amazing he is by building this impressive, globe-spanning, time-stretching organization on him. Now, let's finish that out with advancing, okay? He says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, now, some of your, some of your translations say hell, others may say Hades, opinions vary on exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate there. Does it mean hell as in the place of God's judgment for sin and kind of those that are heading there? Does it mean the place of the dead, right? Hades, kind of the, the normal cultural idea that the, of the, the rule of the principle of death. I, I, opinions vary, okay? But here's the, here's the reality, both ultimately lead us to the same conclusion because both concepts, whether you're talking hell or Hades, and, and you can get into the academic arguments, okay? The academic arguments are what they are and they're very important. But at the end of the day, both lead us to the same place because both concepts represent something of the power of darkness in the world. The gates of hell, we'll just say hell, okay? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, Can I tell you, and, and some of you are already thinking this, the normal way of understanding that phrase is to see this in reverse. Many of us have been taught that what Jesus is saying there is, don't worry, I'm going to build my church and, and nothing's going to take you down. I will keep it, no matter how small, I will keep that church forever. Right? Right? And that is true, but that is not what that verse says. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to a city that has gates, okay? Now, they don't have many of those here, right? We don't do city gates here, uh, no walls around cities here generally, um, maybe at the southern border. Uh, but other than that, there's no walls around anything. But, but in the ancient world and in, in Europe, you would have cities with walls, right? What were the purpose of those walls again? Right, protection, right? And what was the purpose of the gate? You can go in and out, right? But when enemies come, what do you do with the gates? You close them. And what do enemies generally do with shut gates? They break them down. It's a lot easier to break down gates than it is the wall, unless you're marching around Jericho. Right? In which case you blow a horn and they all fall down. And like, and you know everyone's standing around going like, well, who saw that coming? Right? So anyway, but that's not, you go to the gates to get in. You go to the gates because gates are defensive. When Jesus talks about this, he is not saying that hell will never prevail against your gates, church. He says their gates will never prevail against you. This is not about Jesus protecting his church for all time, though that is true. This is about the church 
not being able to be stopped by the powers of darkness. That is what this is about. You, Peter, and on your relative unimpressiveness, I'm going to build something that even death itself cannot stop. That I will move it forward and it will be plundering hell. It will be taking those that were heading there and ripping them out. Those under the power of death, pulling them out. Where darkness is, the church is going to go and it won't be able to stop you. Is that what you expect? Gates don't attack. Gates don't assault. And listen, I know the verbal gymnastics used by very, men way smarter than me, women way smarter than me. The verbal gymnastics used to make those gates an actual attacking army is impressive. But that is not what this says. To argue against the most natural reading of this passage would require a pretty strong presupposition. Like the church is always just going to decrease and and we're just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller until Jesus comes back and and, and, you know, we're just going to keep losing more and more influence and keep losing our ability to actually impact anything until Jesus comes back. Because, well, isn't that what Left Behind told us? Yeah, I wasn't actually trying to make a joke there. But isn't that what we believe? This is a statement about the church moving forward on offense, not defense, pushing back darkness and plundering the power of death. And so now, seeing that, I want to take a minute and just talk about our expectations because I think this passage absolutely destroys those. I think it, 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 it knocks out our expectations of God and it knocks out our expectations of the church, okay? So I said a bit ago, let's start with God. I said a bit ago that we tend to view God as like out there. And by out there, I mean like out way out there. Like he's, he's out there, kind of just chilling, and our job is to go find him, right? Like in our culture, a posture of searching for God, searching for the truth is super popular. It's very popular to search. Not very popular to have found, but it's very popular to search. And so we like to go searching. And, the, and, there, and, and when we see God is like out there and we're searching and, and some of us have found him, there are two attitudes this generally creates in us. The first deals with us. Because when we see ourselves as the ones who found God, that we searched out long enough and we, we found him in, in the first place, we often both pat ourselves on the back. Good job. Like, you, you did it. You, you put in the work. You, you searched for him. And we tend to see our relationship with God in the same way. God's just kind of out there and we got to just keep drilling. Like, just keep, keep working at this and, and see this as like, uh, we're, we're the ones who are all about our growth and our faith. So if you're a Christian here this morning, I need you to look at me real quick, okay? Give me your eyes. If you checked out, come back. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You are not a Christian because you searched hard enough. You are not a Christian because you were spiritually interested enough. You are a Christian because Jesus, purely out of his grace, decided to take that thing in you and in me that suppresses that truth and go, not today. And he got rid of it, and all of a sudden, it was like, 
How have I not seen this before? Jesus sought you. He chased you. And I don't care whether you put your faith in Jesus when you were 5, 25, 55, it doesn't matter. Jesus got you, not the other way around. And your growth in Jesus is also about him. Right? You, you, you can't change you. I can't change me. You couldn't back then, before you knew Jesus, and you can't now. He's the one that changes us. And then, listen, I know some of you are thinking, oh, well, Rick's saying that I don't have to do any of this spiritual stuff. That's awesome. That's not what I said. I'm not saying don't pursue him in a relationship. Like, you're not in the relationship. Like, let's say if you're married, you're not in that marriage because you, well, I know, this is going to argue, some of you are going to argue with me, like, yeah, I had to chase her down. Like, she was not. But, like, you're not keeping her because you're chasing her. She made promises to you, right? You're not keeping him because you're chasing him. He made promises to you. But that doesn't mean you don't chase him. That doesn't mean you don't chase her. That's the way we do relationship, right? What I'm saying is not, is not don't pursue Jesus. Don't read the Bible. Don't spend time in prayer. Don't work on your growth. Not at all. What I'm saying is don't put your hope in those things. Don't put your hope in the practices. Don't put your hope in those disciplines. Pray your heart out, asking God to change you, and then pursue those things knowing that it's probably through those things he's going to do it. But he's the one that's doing it. So that's about us. But the second assumption it messes with is about others because we think that, you know, God is just out there, right? And we're supposed to search for him. And some people, we can tell if they're searching or not, right? We tend to think that people who don't seem like they're searching, well, they're just out of luck. Look at me, look at me. The Apostle Paul, he was not looking for Jesus, at least not to follow him, you know? He was not looking for Jesus. Moses, not looking for God, literally looking for a sheep. Found a burning bush, who knew? Abraham, not looking for God, worshiping false gods in the city of Ur. Rick, not looking for God. Looking for some friends. That's what I was looking for. Just because your neighbor or your coworker has never seemed spiritually interested, it doesn't mean that God isn't at work. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't want to come to church with you. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't want to enter into a spiritual conversation with you. And listen, I know some of us are like, Rick, I'm not ready for that. If you're not ready for that, that's fine. You bring them here, I will preach the gospel, and you can take them out later and ask them about the crazy dude on stage. Like, that's super easy, okay? But listen, salvation belongs to the Lord. And friends, he is not a miser with it. He gives it. And we often, almost always, can't tell who. He's going to give it to you. So that's the expectations about God. Now let's talk about expectations about the church. So I've been doing this for a while now, and there's something I probably know about you, even if I don't know you, at least some of you. You are bored with your faith. Right? It's okay. 
It's okay. I totally get it, in fact. Like, I totally understand this. Because somewhere down the line, you were taught that Christianity is about getting your sins forgiven, getting morally better, uh, and keeping your head down until Jesus comes back. And then maybe, maybe if you're so inclined, maybe you want to learn a little theology. I mean, you are in a PCA church. So you're probably, that's probably also what you've been taught, right? And so the best that you can hope for, because the world's going to hell in a handbasket, is just to kind of stay quiet, keep the faith, hope your kids don't run off the rails, and then when Jesus comes back, then it all goes great, right? If that's you, you are right. That is boring. That is insanely boring. And that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. I'm not sure I would really want to be engaged with that either. Listen, what if that isn't what's going on? What if the reason that that is your experience is because you've come to expect nothing more than that? And so you don't engage in anything more than that. What if Jesus promised that he would take this little insignificant thing and he would take that little insignificant thing and show how powerful he was by building this massive, time-spanning community on it that could literally see the world changed? What if Jesus was honest when he said that the kingdom is like the smallest little seed that grows into the biggest of trees that gives shade and shelter to everything. I get it, though. You don't believe me. You're thinking, Rick, the church is dwindling. Haven't you seen the stats? Yeah, well, let me, let me just do a brief span of history, shall I not? When this passage was written, Jesus had 12 followers. He lost one. Uh, that was planned on, but it still lost one. So by the time the, the resurrection happened, the ascension, he's got, he's got 11 dudes, maybe a handful of other people, some, some ladies that are kind of following around, providing all the material support. Ladies like, I knew it. You know, like, they, so you've got these groups, and this is it. 250 years later, in the midst of sporadic, government-sponsored, violent attempts to destroy the church, there were so many Christians in the Roman Empire that even if, and some of you doubt this, but even if the emperor didn't convert, I know, jury's out, we'll find out one day, he at least made play of it because he knew that he had no other choice if he wanted to hold his empire together. The Roman Empire that spanned everywhere from India to England there were so many Christians in it that he was like, if I don't, it, either he did and he converted, or he said, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to keep this thing together anymore because there's too many Christians. Oh, but that was then. You're right. That was totally then. That, that never happens anymore. What if I told you that in China where the government is explicitly trying to suppress Christianity, it's the exact opposite that's going on. It's growing like crazy. There's more Christians in China and India today than like anywhere. Two places where they're still getting violent persecutions. And not just that. Listen, this isn't just about making Christians. It's about pushing back darkness. Do you, if, if you doubt this, I'm going I'm to give you a book reference, okay? There's a book 
by a sociologist, not the actor, a sociologist by the name of Tom Holland. Don't trust anything the actor says. He's just, he's Mr. Spoiler. But the, the, the sociologist actually wrote a great book called Dominion. That he's, He was a non-Christian at the time when he wrote it, and it's about the, the impact of the church on Western culture. And do you, do you understand that everything that we take for granted in our culture, things like human rights, care for the poor, um, care for the elderly, like all of these things, like all of these things that we think are just normal, that that's not an inheritance of ancient Rome. They believed the exact opposite. The reason that this culture, that Western culture holds to any of that is because the kingdom of God wrecked it, just wrecked what was out there and took, wrecked the kingdom of darkness and said, you're not doing that anymore. We're doing something different now where people are going to flourish. No, you're not throwing babies on a dumpster. I'm not doing that anymore. No, you're not just going to abandon the sick so they die by themselves. So you stay safe. We're not doing that anymore. No, we're not going to treat all of these people who, who come from a different socioeconomic class like they're just, they're just garbage that we can do with what we want. We're not doing that anymore. That's not who they are. Jesus built his church, and he wrecked the gates of Hades. So here's the question. Why isn't it now? Maybe it's because we've been so fooled into thinking that we should just sit behind our walls, poke our heads up every once in a while, throw a gospel grenade over it, (laughs) see if there's any carnage on the other side, and if so... Open the gates really fast and drag them in. What if we could reimagine UPC as a church on the move here in East Orlando? What if we believe God wants his church to be on the move? Not as a program. No, no, no. Not as a program. As a posture of life. Programs can be put to bed. They have a, they have a shelf life. But a posture, this is just the way we live. That when I go to work every day, I'm trusting God's going to use me to push back darkness. Whether I work in finance, real estate, or ministry, God's going to use me to push back darkness. Maybe it's in my schools. Maybe as a student, when I go, like I'm praying and believing, you know what, God's going to use me to push back darkness in this school. With my, with, with my peers. Maybe it's where we hang out, where we work out, whatever. What if, what if we believe that God wants his church to be on the move as a life posture, a church that is expecting him to push back the darkness of this community through us? Not because we're great. We aren't. It's a quirky bunch. We're all a quirky bunch. It's okay. God loves the quirky bunches. He takes that little insignificant thing and he builds this thing on it and he says, look at what I'm going to do. He does it because he loves to do great work through insignificant things to show his greatness. What if that's what he wants to do? How would that change how you go to work? How is that going to change how you're going to get up and go about your day tomorrow? What if? What if? pray with me yes Jesus what if 
Lord, I just pray that you'd work in our hearts to change our expectations, to change our, uh, change what we're willing to settle for. C.S. Lewis was right. Man, we settle for mud pies when the ocean is right in front of us. Lord, don't let us do that. Don't let UPC do that. Inflame our imaginations with the gospel to know that you've, you've called your people and that you have built your church and you continue to build your church and that the gates of hell will not withstand her. Move in us, work in us, give us faith to believe it and then to go live it. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.